Hi, thank you for joining us. My name is Dr. James O'Keefe and I'm a cardiologist at St. Luke's Mid-America Heart Institute. My name is Melissa McGuire and I'm a nurse clinician and certified diabetes educator at the Haverty Cardiometabolic Center of Excellence, the St. Luke's Mid-America Heart Institute. In this podcast, we'll explore the strong connection between diabetes and heart failure, as well as potential interactions with other systems. It's great to be here and discuss an often overlooked phenomenon, the cardiorenal metabolic connection. Dr. O'Keefe, would you care to elaborate on this? Of course. When considering the potential effects and complications associated with heart disease, it is important to think about this disease more holistically and consider how the heart is connected to other systems. To this point, we will discuss the interconnectedness of the cardiovascular, renal, and metabolic systems. As you know, the heart is a metabolically demanding organ. It is susceptible to changes in volume or metabolism. The kidneys play a key role in glucose and volume homeostasis, and the regulation of energy metabolism is essential for the heart and the kidneys. As such, dysfunction in one of these systems can lead to dysregulation in any of the other systems. I also want to point out that researchers and clinical guidelines are increasingly recognizing the interplay of these three systems, leading to a call for more collaborative care and coordinated training across specialties. With what we now know, it's our responsibility to make sure we don't treat these organ systems in isolation and make sure we're giving our patients the most comprehensive care possible. Absolutely. Moving forward, I think increased recognition of the interconnected nature of these systems will lead to greater cross-specialty collaboration in caring for our patients. Now that we're talking about metabolic disturbances, it's very important to discuss type 2 diabetes. Type 2 diabetes is extremely common in individuals with heart failure, affecting approximately 30% of these patients. And the reverse is also true. Individuals with type 2 diabetes have a two and a half times greater rate of heart failure than those without diabetes. Moreover, people with type 2 diabetes make up about 44% of all patients hospitalized for heart failure. It is also important to keep in mind that those patients with heart failure and diabetes, that 44% I just mentioned, had a longer stay in the hospital than those with heart failure but no diabetes, drastically increasing the burden on this group of patients. Dr. O'Keefe, I'd like to add a little bit more about the poor prognosis associated with the co-occurrence of these conditions. In patients with heart failure who are at least 65 years of age, type 2 diabetes is independently associated with a greater risk of mortality and rehospitalization compared to heart failure patients who do not have this concomitant diabetes. The takeaway here, as the authors conclude in that study, is that special attention should be paid to how we treat this potentially frail population, those 65 years of age and older with comorbid type 2 and heart failure. We should adapt accordingly and maintain constant attention to the needs and status of our patients. That is a great point, Melissa, and it also highlights the need for careful coordination between specialties when treating this population. Dr. O'Keefe, can you discuss how the two different types of heart failure with reduced or preserved ejection fraction fit into all of this? Certainly. As I mentioned before, diabetes leads to a poor prognosis in patients with heart failure. Here, I would like to briefly review data from a study that analyzed the survival of patients with different types of heart failure with a particular focus on how the presence of diabetes can alter this survival. There were two main groups, patients who had been hospitalized for heart failure with preserved ejection fraction and those hospitalized with a reduced or borderline ejection fraction of less than 50%. 
in both cohorts, the likelihood of survival is significantly lower over time for patients with comorbid diabetes than for patients without diabetes. It's also worth reiterating, Dr. O'Keefe, that the relationship between diabetes and heart failure and the progression of these diseases may be multifactorial and reciprocal. Isn't it true that this study was novel when it was conducted and that previous studies had focused almost exclusively on the effect of diabetes on survival in patients with reduced ejection fraction? Moving forward, we can definitively say that diabetes should be taken very seriously in patients with either kind of heart failure. Critical point, Melissa. Really important context for that study, and that is, in fact, the key takeaway here. This, of course, raises the question, what can be done to improve the prognosis of patients with diabetes at risk for heart failure? Unfortunately, traditional approaches to glucose control focused heavily on A1C alone, but this does not lead to any significant improvement in outcomes. This is true for both all-cause hospitalizations and for heart failure hospitalizations specifically. Well, I think it's an important idea because historically, when one heard the term diabetes, it was automatically associated with A1C primarily, and that's what the medical community focused on for such a long time. But now we know there's more to the story. Absolutely, Melissa. A1C does not tell the whole story. You really need to look at the fluctuations in blood glucose throughout the day, and when possible, I review my patient's time within the recommended range. I have found this to be a better indicator of diabetes management overall than simply checking their A1C every few months. Now, as we mentioned earlier, diabetes is not the only condition that is deeply intertwined with heart failure. Heart failure can also lead to a progression in kidney disease as the heart fails to meet its metabolic requirements and is unable to accommodate systemic venous return. This dysfunction triggers compensatory but ultimately maladaptive mechanisms such as an increase in venous pressure, sympathetic nervous system activation, and naturesis as the body struggles to restore cardiac output. These compensatory mechanisms can lead to a worsening of heart failure over time, which can lead in turn to worsening kidney function. And kidney damage itself can also lead to further renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, or RAS, activation, causing sodium and water retention and vasoconstriction effectively worsening heart function. It's a vicious circle of damage between the heart and the kidneys. It really is a vicious circle, Melissa, that can start at the heart and truly end tragically back at the heart again. That worsening heart function that you mentioned can often lead to the need for a heart transplant or even to sudden death due to a cardiac event. Now I would like to bring diabetes back into the picture and highlight some results from a study looking at its association with the progression of kidney disease in patients with a heart failure diagnosis. Perhaps not surprisingly, they found that diabetes status is strongly associated with worsening renal function over time in patients with heart failure. Patients with heart failure and hypertension were also at higher risk of worsening renal function. This study included both patients with preserved and reduced ejection fraction, again, highlighting that these cross-system interactions and the impact on renal function are not unique to any heart failure subtype. Worsening renal function in this study was, expectedly, also associated with increased mortality rates, further illustrating another burden on patients with heart failure. The interaction between cardiovascular, renal, and metabolic systems cannot be overstated. Yes, I, I've seen this in my clinical practice. 
Whenever a patient has abnormal renal labs, it's important to explore the multifactorial diagnosis so that when patients present with an EGFR level that's low, for example, you're able to differentiate all the possible causes. Let's pause to reflect on this for a moment. To this day, when patients have both heart failure and type 2 diabetes, their residual risk for morbidity and mortality continues to remain quite high, underlining an unmet need in caring for these patients. Even in patients who are compliant with their plan of care, we must remain cognizant that the combination of diabetes and heart failure will always place these patients at a high risk for diminished life expectancy. And we need to keep in mind that the burden of disease on people with comorbid diabetes and heart failure is high and devastating, and whether they have heart failure with preserved or reduced ejection fraction. The health of both of these patient populations should be followed closely, and these patients require carefully coordinated care from their provider team. Now, treatment guidelines are not always applied as intended for patients with one type of heart failure, heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. And to provide some context for this study, guidelines for the management of heart failure with reduced ejection fraction strongly recommend that patients be treated with multiple medications demonstrated to improve clinical outcomes, such as mortality and hospitalization rates, on a case-by-case -case basis as tolerated. Despite these proven benefits and recommendations, though, clinical practice has traditionally fallen short of what we see in clinical trials. The researchers found that many patients were not given the appropriate guideline-recommended treatment or were not given the appropriate dose, even without any contraindications. This ranged from 26% to as high as 86%, depending on the recommended therapy. Often, these incorrect or insufficient medications are the result of clinical or therapeutic inertia, which may originate from the patient, the clinician, or even a particular healthcare system. Sadly, this can result in what is called a risk treatment paradox, in which heart failure patients with the highest need are often less likely to receive appropriate treatment. This clinical inertia can sometimes be due to poor adherence or resistance to change on the part of the patient. On the clinician side, it might result from a lack of awareness, limited time, or limited experience with complex heart failure cases. Cost, access to care and insurance coverage are other issues that make this a persistent system-wide concern. So one issue we have in this setting is that despite available treatments that can make a difference, not all of our patients are getting them, leaving lots of room for improvement in the delivery of therapy for patients with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. There are a number of treatment classes available for patients with reduced ejection fraction that have demonstrated efficacy. However, there is no available evidence that any of these options have proved effective in ameliorating hospitalization and mortality rates in patients with preserved ejection fraction, the other type of heart failure, and each type represents about half the cases. While there's an unmet need in heart failure care in both disease states, the need is particularly dire in heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, where therapies have impacted quality of life but do not really improve survival. Now, before we end this podcast, let's take a moment to summarize some of the important take-home messages we've discussed. While diabetes and heart disease can both independently increase risk for morbidity and mortality in patients, when these two conditions coincide, the risks are even higher. Diseases of the heart, kidney, and metabolic systems share many common risk factors and can contribute to each other's pathogenicity. 
As a parting thought, I'd like to reiterate that heart failure should not be treated in a silo. The cardiovascular, metabolic, and renal systems are intricately linked to one another, and it is critical that we treat them that way, taking the whole patient into consideration. This may involve a lot more cross-specialty collaboration than we're used to, but it's where we need to go for the sake of our patients. Thanks for the opportunity to share this timely information with you. I really enjoyed the chance to share my thoughts on the cardio-renal metabolic connection. Thank you for joining us.